In the midst of the rush of this season of Christmas, we can lose sight of the substance of Christmas. You know the pace of life. No sooner have we dried off the cooking pans from Thanksgiving, and it seems that the next task is to take out the trash from the Christmas gathering, gathering up the wrapping paper that we have and get it out to the curb. We're going here and there. Isn't Amy Grant right and her lyricist who said, what we need is a silent night. Isn't that true? And couldn't we all benefit from that? I want to open our Advent exposition uh, this year and certainly want to stop right now and give thanks to everyone who worked hard to uh, adorn our church with uh, festive adornment and uh, didn't do God such a, do such a good job with the hue of the poinsettia. Uh, that, that, that's beautiful. Thank you to all, Harriet and your crew. Thank you. I'm grateful. Um, I want to open our Advent exposition this year on today by thinking theologically through Christmas. You say, Eric, what, what in the world is that? Well, that is to take two, uh, several verses from the book of Romans and hold it up as a lens through which to look at the meaning of Christmas and come to appreciate it afresh. What happened at Christmas? Does it matter? What does it mean? Why is it important? At a macro level, just what is the big deal of Christmas? What is all the hullabaloo about 2,000 years hence from this incident in Bethlehem? Do we get Christmas at Calvary? There's quite a bit more going on than the nativity scene. And that's what I want to look at with you this morning and invite you to continue through the book of Romans and come to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. This verse, and a few verses later in Romans 5, explain Christmas. And it'll be my privilege to bring you here this morning. Now, while we are going through the book of Romans on Sunday mornings, we are going to come back to this paragraph, Romans 5, 12 through 21, after the first of the year and after Advent's over. But this morning we're going to start into it because it gives such a rich opportunity to think about the glory of Christmas together. Warren Wiersbe has said these verses, Romans 5, 12 to 21, are the very heart of the letter to the Romans. So we must come back and soak here in a more extended way. But by way of introduction, I want to read to you Romans chapter 5 and verse 12 and verses 18 and 19. Now this morning, I want to raise a question and answer it with three answers from the text. The question is this, what about Christmas must we understand? And I want to give three answers to that question and all three of them go together. They are linked. And they build on each other. And that's our map for a way forward today. 
Romans 5.12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verses 18 and 19. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Hear the word of the Lord. What about Christmas must we understand? Let me give you three answers that build on each other from the text this morning. Number one, Adam ruined the human race and we were with him in the deed. Come to verse 12 and let's ponder it together. There's a line in which he says, all have sinned. And that line is full of import for our understanding. And it suggests that in Adam's act of disobedience, we were present. We are not only influenced by his one act of disobedience, which has cast such a shadow over all of humanity. We were, are not only influenced by it, we were with him in it. We participated in it. In it. Now, this is uh, the biblical notion of original sin. Passed on through generations. Now, we've already looked at Romans chapter 3. If you look across the page, verses 10 through 18, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they become worthless. No one does good, not even one. He goes on to describe our plight. Now, by the way, that is either true or it is not true, and the Bible asserts that it is true. That's the awful truth about us which until we realize it as such, we don't appreciate the glorious truth about Jesus. David said in Psalm 51.5 in that prayer of confession, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. He was not speaking of an immoral birth. He was speaking of the systemic and pervasive sinfulness of humanity that stems from original sin in the garden, all have sinned. We were with Adam in the garden in that way. Now this truth taught in the Bible of original sin is obnoxious to some. We have kind of a natural aversion against it. Well, we remember when we were on ball teams and maybe it was a basketball team and And the coach said, all right, now nobody's allowed to let the ball hit the floor in this drill. If the ball hits the floor in this drill, you're all going to hit the line and you're going to do line drills. Well, there was always one there to dwell on the team, of course. And we knew as soon as Ralphie got the ball, and if you're Ralphie, no doubt you were totally dissimilar to this guy, but 
just random name. You know, we, we knew as soon as Ralphie got the ball, it was going to hit the floor. And boom, the coach was going to say, all right, every one of you get on the line. And there was something deep within all of us that wanted to say, coach, we didn't drop the ball. He dropped the ball. We, 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 we don't like this. Uh, and rugged individual, uh, rugged individualist in America, we, we don't like that. So we have an aversion against this notion of original sin taught very clearly in Scripture. We want to think we're not responsible, that it's somebody else's fault. But Romans 5.12 says we all sinned in and with Adam. We were there, and we need to own it. I remember when I was at Dallas Seminary my first year, I worked as a bellman at Sheraton Inn Mockingbird. It was a fascinating experience. And uh, I wasn't married. I had this Spartan life. And I beat my brains out academically all week. And then work Friday and Saturday night, 3 to 11. And um, go to church on Sunday and rinse and repeat. That was my first year of seminary. And first year and a half I worked at a bellman at the hotel. And um, it was during, and what? when have we ever not had a Middle Eastern crisis? But... You know, it was right, right after the Arab oil embargo and, and uh, there's ferment everywhere, the Iranian crisis and the Carter administration. And, and uh, so I worked with two Iranian guys and uh, they were bellmen with me. And uh, uh, then I worked with a Lebanese guy. And by the way, if you don't have any Lebanese friends, you need to get some. They're, they're, they're great, great folks. They're, their spirit is so neat. And um, this guy's name was Melky. And one Friday night, and, and it was a commuter hotel, so Friday and Saturday night, it, it kind of would die a little bit, unless you had the OUTU football game, then it was really high watermark and a good weekend to work. But anyway, I was on, I was a dispatcher, I was the uh, operator too, so you did a little bit of everything there. So I'm sitting there as the operator, and he's sitting there at the front desk, and we're just talking to each other, and God opened up a conversation about Jesus, and I thought, oh, this is great. I'm going to talk to Melky about Jesus. And so we started into the conversation. And I began to share the good news about Jesus with him. And by the way, you, you can't get to the good news and appreciate it until you have uh, understand the bad news about who we really are. So I was talking about Adam and his sin. And the consequence of the sin was the damnation of God and his justice because of his holiness. And he just stopped me. He said, hey. And we were talking about damnation. He said, I don't give a damn what Adam did. And I said, Melky, damnation, we're on to something. We are on to something. You need to understand that damnation is in play because we have broken the law of God and put ourselves instead for damnation. But his problem was being tied together with Adam. And it's besetting to proud people who want credit for everything and don't want to own what is true about our heart. We can't understand our world and humanity without grasping this truth. Eric, why is it like it is? Christmas has a lot less luster until one embraces what is true about us. Now, for six years, Andy and I lived in Michigan, and we lived in a parsonage right next to a, a parking lot of the church. It was really flat, and our two boys were growing up and they were, uh, oh, they were big into inline skating or uh, rollerblading. And we had these 
death. We bought two hockey goals, and we'd have everybody in the neighborhood there. These deathmatch hockey games were out there playing. And it was right around the time, just perfectly timed, that Hollywood released a couple movies about these junior hockey teams, the Mighty Ducks, you know. And so, so we'd go out, and we'd, we'd have these death matches and come in and watch Mighty Ducks and laugh and everything. Well, there's one point, and, and um, I, I hope you're not too sanctified for this. Sometimes I'm not very sanctified and can offend you. But um, the coach was trying to help the team cohesively work together as a unit. And so he decided to get this big fat rubber band and he got all of them out on the ice one day and he said, all right, get in a circle. So they got in. He just bunched them all together and he put a big rubber band around them. They're all in there together. And he said, now I want you to skate. And the idea was you can't skate all together as a team unless you work together and figure this out. And he was going on, and this, you know, this was like the, the mother of all team building drills. And they're junior high boys. And one of them lets loose with a flatulent right in the middle of the exercise. So then it just breaks up the whole exercise. And he inquires as to what's going on. And there's a disturbance until finally one little boy in the middle of the circle says, It was me! And then it was resolved, and they went on with the team-building exercise. It is not until we come to recognize it was me that Christmas really means anything. Because if we don't need Christmas, then why do we do this to ourselves every year? Romans 5.12 says, It was me, and I was with Adam. Adam ruined the human race, and we were with him in the deed. See, Eric, I'm still having a hard time with this. Think of Hebrews 7, 9. Abraham, a long time before Levi lived, is there after he routs Keterle Omer, who had taken Lot's goods, and he recovers it all. He meets Melchizedek coming back. And he gives him a portion of the spoils, the king of Salem, this mysterious, glorious figure. You get to Hebrews 7, 9 and talking about the uh, priesthood, that Christ is a better priest than Aaron. But you said even Aaron paid tithes, Levi paid tithes to Melchizedek. And you say, now wait a minute. He wasn't even alive back then. But the text has a curious spin. It says he was still in the loins of his father. New American Standard Version, English Standard Version. He's still in the loins of his ancestor. That he was present there in the deed as that tribute was paid to Melchizedek in the same way we were present with Adam in the deed. And it has made us equally culpable. We were not only seminally present in our federal head, Adam, we were willfully engaged with the choice ourselves. It's on us. We brought it on, which makes Christmas so glorious because that's not the last word, nor the last Adam. Now, secondly, death resulted and still haunts Adam's children. What happened in the act? Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and death spread to all men. 
So death spread to all men. I've showed you Abigail, our now married daughter and mother. Um, when she was a little girl in Sunday school one day, they gave her a sheet of paper and said, uh, one of the questions was, uh, what, you, what I don't understand about God. She brought it home and handed it to me, and I opened it up. What I don't understand about God. Here was her. She just wrote a question. Why people die? I thought, wow. She's become alert and alive to the brokenness of our world. People die. You know what? One of the glories of Christianity and of gospel Christianity is we have an explanation for reality. You know what? We understand why people die. Sin entered. The curse came with death. That's why people die. Oh, you see, Eric, I don't believe that. I don't believe the Bible. I don't believe God. Okay. Why do people die? Well, Eric, I'll tell you what. It's just a part of life. Now, by the way, have you ever heard anything more absurd than that? Death is a part of life. That doesn't even make any logical sense. It's ridiculous. Or you get the, uh, oh, shucks, I'm sorry. That's not helpful. Why do people die? What is your explanation? The Bible says there's a very clear explanation. It's not just how it is, because it wasn't like this in the beginning. And it's not going to be like this in the end. It's an interim tragedy while God gathers everyone who will come to Jesus Christ unto himself and to life and gives them a future and a hope in Christ. Agatha Christie said, old sins have long shadows. The fall is as old as it gets, and that shadow is cast even unto today. Oh, what a shadow of death has been brought. In that sense, Adam started something, but rather than start something good, it was like a domino effect. We've been dying ever since the garden. The wages of sin, we'll get to that verse eventually in Romans chapter 6, is death. Adam's misadventure was very costly. It created momentum for the human race. It continues unto today. Death resulted and still haunts Adam's children. Now the third thing, and these all three go together. First, Adam ruined the human race, and we were there with him in the deed. Secondly, death resulted and still haunts Adam's children. Thirdly, And this brings Christmas into focus. God started over with Christmas and created a whole new humanity. I love verse 12, and it says, Therefore, just as sin came into the world. Yes, sin came into the world through Adam and this choice, and it resulted in death, but it wasn't the last thing that came into the world to make a difference because then God sent his son, and there was Christmas. Then Jesus, let's use those words from 512, came into the world. And now everything is changed. God started over with Christmas, and he created a whole new humanity. Adam started that domino effect, and what reigned, what ruled, 
was death. Notice the word reign is used three times here. Once in verse 17, death reigned. Another time in verse 17, the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reigned. So that Adam got something started, death, and it reigned undisputed until Christmas. But at Bethlehem, it began to change. At Good Friday, death was dismantled. And the spoils of the resurrection are that it no longer reigns today. Christmas made a huge difference. Now look at verse 21. So that as sin reigned in death, what's reigning now? If Jesus reached down and dethroned death, what took its place? Grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Wow. The all-time, undefeated, untried foe of death was dethroned at the coming of Jesus. There's now another possibility for humankind. It is eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Look at verse 21. Andy grew up in a loving home. She's the oldest of six children, my wife Andy. Her dad is a blue-collar guy who turned wrenches for General Motors for his career at the Proving Grounds in Clarkson, Michigan. She grew up in a rather humble dwelling. It was actually a, uh, uh, on a lake. You know, there's a bajillion lakes in Michigan. It was on, uh, it, was a, uh, it was like a summer cottage uh, on a lake in Michigan. And we were, we were having a little, it was a friendly one, uh, a little argument over how many rooms were there. And, uh, yeah, there was a kitchen. There was a little dining room, living room. Okay, three. All right, two bedrooms. And then there was this loft thing, you know. So they raised six kids, one small bathroom, and, and, and a small, modest house. Well, after the house was really tired, and after all the kids were up and gone, and after Ed retired from GM, they moved up north. They sold the place. And we wondered, you know, what, what's going to happen to that place? Wonder what will happen. We'll have to go back sometime and see. And we went back and we saw. And here's what happened. Somebody bought it. And they looked at what was there. And they said to themselves, well, how can we remediate this circumstance? What ought we do? Do we do this and 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 this to the house? You know what? Let's do this. Let's tear it down and start all over. You say, Eric, I've never got Christmas. Well, it's the strategy of the buyer. God tore humanity down, and he started over with a second Adam, Jesus Christ. That's Christmas. That's it. The way forward was to tear down the old house and start over. That's just exactly what God did in Jesus Christ. He started all over. Humanity stands in one or the other of two iconic lines. The head of one line is Adam. 
The head of the other line is Jesus Christ. May I stop and ask you this morning, which line are you in? Who are you standing behind? God invites you to receive Jesus Christ as your Savior. God invites you to repent of your sin and turn in faith to Jesus Christ. Here, now, this morning, if you've never done that. You say, Eric, this line full of the curse and frustration, sweat of the brow and death, that doesn't sound as attractive as a line full of life and forgiveness and hope and death resolved in eternal life. I want that. If you're there, you want Jesus. Has God brought you here to change lines this morning? Now, I'll die competitive. Doesn't matter what it is. I roll up on the bank, and I hardly ever do this anymore, but if I'm going to use the uh, uh, teller lines outdoors in the car, and there's some car stacked up there, I'll roll in and get back far enough and ponder, now which one's going to open first? If I'm checking out at Kroger, you know, which, which line is best? If I'm traveling abroad, you know, when I come to passport control, all right, let me see. And it's okay if I'm by myself, but I'm always scheming, making that choice. But what's really bad is when I have people with me. And I've made a persuasive argument for the best line to get in. And this line may be zipping through until, you know, the man in front of me wants to tell an 18-minute story to the, 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 the dudes, you know, that's taking care of everybody through the line. And then I really get the dickens from the people that I've, no, this line is the best. Stay in this line. I always hate it when I end up in the wrong line, don't you? It doesn't matter. You just wait a little bit and get through. But if you end up in the wrong line for eternity, it will matter forever and ever. And God, with Christmas, invites everybody home to himself. What a Savior. What an event Christmas was. Remember the phys ed teacher often would start in the class, all right, everybody line up behind Susie. Everybody line up behind Johnny. Who are you lined up behind this Christmas. Many here this morning know the joy of lining up behind Jesus Christ, our Lord. And we feel in our spirit, because of the Spirit of God, what is being talked about in verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, 22, For as in Adam all die, so also Christ in Christ shall all be made alive. Ought there not be a lot of joy in the line behind Jesus? Ought not the most joyful people on earth coming to Advent be the children of God in Christ? Who have found in him and his line, God started over with the second Adam. A whole new redeemed humanity. 
And by the grace of God, we've been found in that line. And so of all people to have joy, of all people to enjoy life, of all people to soldier through suffering, ought it not be us? The tragedy brought by our choice in Adam is incalculable. What each of us respectively did affected countless numbers in the human race. But the glory wrought by Jesus is even more incalculable. Because God started over with the second Adam. As John Calvin said, Christ is much more powerful to save than Adam was to ruin So of all people on earth, those in line who smile, the joyful line, the festive line full of gratitude, the beaming line, the line who most would enjoy the celebration of Advent, well, that's the Jesus line. So indeed, oh come, let us adore him. Heavenly Father, thank you. That seems so trite and small in the face of what you did to start over with redeemed humanity. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift, Jesus Christ our Lord. And as we enter the worship of Advent, Lord, fill our hearts with thrill afresh. By your grace, death has been dethroned. And we've been given a new line, a line of life and light and vitality and grace, the Jesus line. We love you. Hear our prayers right now in response to this message. For the tired and the discouraged, they want to talk to you. those in the Adam line who have no hope, who have an inkling of a life that could be had in Jesus, Lord, hear them as they pray. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. For those who are dull, for whom the glory of Christmas and the glory of Christ has lost a bit of its sheen, how could that be? For those covered over with the cares and the affairs of everyday life, hear them as they talk to you now. Oh, come, Lord. Come. Let us adore you by your grace. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.